Friends, we as a society love to plan. We love making plans. We love to envision the outcome of our plans. We make financial forecasts. We like to do, uh, we like to be in control of what we do and of what happens. As a matter of fact, as a society, we tend to get very irritated when there's poor planning. When the details are not spelled out, or if they are spelled out and there is good planning, when plans don't go, the, or when things don't go the way we plan. I remember the frustration I've seen in American missionaries who travel on mission trips overseas especially in countries where advanced planning was not a virtue of that society. How much frustration and uncertainty and anxiety was around the lack of planning. Well, friends, there's nothing wrong with desiring to plan. There's nothing wrong in wanting to be organized. But it is possible that the way we plan can reveal where our confidence lies in. The way we plan may reveal what we rely on. And what we rely on might be the fruit of a subtle arrogance of life. And this is what James will address in our passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to James chapter 4? We'll be reading from verse 13 to 17. And if you did not bring a Bible this morning with you, if you're visiting with us and uh, don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles provided in a chair in front of you. As a matter of fact, we'd love for you to have that Bible. Um, we, would you open it to page number 1013, 1013, as we prepare our hearts to... Read from God's Word and hear from God. As you open there, I want to remind you that we're currently going through a sermon series in the book of James, a book that challenges us to consider genuine faith, what genuine faith looks like. And this morning, we are looking at the theme of the arrogance of life. Here's James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The Word of the Lord says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our dependence, entire dependence upon you, to hear from you. 
We thank you for this word that you have allowed us to read. We thank you for this word that you have revealed to us. And now we pray, would you, by your spirit, would you help us understand your word and help us to apply to our hearts so that Christ might be exalted among us in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our approach to life. Father, we pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, the the period when James um, wrote this letter was characterized by growing commercial activity all throughout the Middle East. It was not uncommon uh, for Jews, for the people of Israel to um, leave Israel for a time and relocate in other regions of uh, of that time, of that place, uh, in other regions to uh, make more profit in a particular area, at least for a while. It was common for these Christians to relocate and uh, hoping that they would earn a better living. The situation is not very different from us today, especially when traveling is so much more easy. People can relocate easier. And uh, living, especially in the city of Austin, where there's about 150 people moving into the city every day, um, and people moving here uh, because the economy seems to be going well. It is a prosperous city. People love moving to Austin. Um, so it is not different to hear people make plans, even want to relocate for the sake of being more prosperous. There's nothing wrong with desiring to do that. There's nothing wrong with uh, Moving and going to a different place and making plans, as long as those desires are not motivated by simply a love of the world or the love of prosperity or materialism. Making plans, whatever those plans are about, is not necessarily wrong. Now, James is addressing people who were making plans for their future, people who liked planning their future, and yet something was off in their planning. Something was off spiritually, and the way they planned revealed their spiritual problem. As we look at this passage to see what exactly James is addressing uh, in confronting people who were making plans, I want us to look at two major points. We'll look at the problem, we'll look at what the problem is, and then we'll look at the solution. We'll look at what is the solution. So let's look at the problem. What is the problem? What is the problem James is exposing in this passage? In verse 13, he gives a scenario about people who seem to be great managers, great planners of their lives. Uh, They seem to know where the money is, and they seem to want to go there and uh, want to make a profit. He says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. We'll spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. Clarification, James is not against people who make plans. Um, it is good for us as people to be responsible for what we do. People who, there's nothing wrong to be a person who, who loves to be organized. Some people actually thrive on being organized. I hear that teachers have a personality that, uh, that thrives on being organized and details, and they need to have their plans laid out. If you're a teacher, we're so glad you're here. We thank God for the planning gifts that he has given you. I hear also that managers and business people like to, to make plans and think of strategies of how to accomplish their visions. Thank God for them. And yet, what is James exposing here? Notice the emphasis of their plans. 
Their plans are not only for today, tomorrow, they're, they're also for what will happen in a year. More so, they will assume they'll be able to trade, and they'll assume they'll be able to make a profit. The problem is not the planning. The problem seems to be the self-confidence and the self-reliance on the outcome of their plans. In this planning, there seems to be no place, not even a hint of their dependence upon God. In other words, they're making plans, and somehow they forget to consider God's sovereign control. They forget to consider their dependence upon God. Thus, their way of planning revealed a spiritual problem. And this clearly is exposed as being sinful in verse 16. Look at verse 16, where James calls this a boasting in arrogance. It's, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This is the culprit. This is the problem. This is what James exposed as evil in their planning. Not the planning, but the arrogance they had in their hearts. And that arrogance was manifested in the way they planned. A planning that was characterized by self-reliance. Oh, friends, this problem of arrogance with James exposes in verse 16 helps us to understand how this passage fits in the overall context of chapter 4 of this letter. Remember how from the very beginning of chapter 4, James exposed the pride these Christians had. Remember in, in verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he goes on and he finds the culprit. It's their passions. It's their pride. The lack of humility manifested in their relationships, in the tensions they had among themselves. James exposed the danger of pride. Pride causes us to fight with others. Pride causes us to, to create tensions in our relationships. But worse, as James reminded us earlier in chapter 4, pride leads us to love the world and to become spiritual adulterers and thus triggers God's enmity against us, His jealousy over us. So James pleaded with these Christians he pleaded with them to humble themselves before God. And we saw what that meant. In verses 6 through 10, James gave 10 imperatives, 10 commands, to define what it means to live humbly before God. He said it means to submit to God, to resist the devil, to draw near to God, to cleanse and purify ourselves, and to mourn for our sin. And then last week, we saw a particular way in which this pride manifested in in the lives of these believers, and, and, and James commands them clearly against it. James commanded them not to speak against one another, because even that is a form of pride. And now, after 12 verses of, of hammering in the, this battle, the, this problem of, of pride versus humility, now in verses 13 through 17, we see another example of where pride shows up in our lives. It's not only our unwillingness to submit to God or to mourn for our sin. It's not only our destructive responses to other people. Pride is visible in us. 
when we have an arrogant view of life, an attitude of self-reliance, self-reliant confidence in what we plan, in what we want to see happen, in what we think we can cause to happen. Friends, you may not, you may not struggle this morning with tensions in your relationships. You may be a very polite person, a very considerate person, um, but for you, pride may manifest in wanting to have control over your life in the way you plan. Your hunger for compulsive planning might be caused by an arrogance of life, an arrogance that fails to keep God's plans in view. You know that you fail to keep God's plans in view when, uh, when God intercepts your plans and even changes them, and you're not a happy camper. Making plans, expecting everything to go according to your ways, without realizing that God has the right. And he often does actually act on that right to change what we plan. Oh, friends, the frustration that goes with that, the anxiety that goes with that, is often the fruit of the pride of life. In, in James, this arrogant view of life was a fruit, fruit of the pride that loves this world and seeks friendship with the world. In this, in this chapter, we, we saw earlier how James confronted these believers with their love for the world, and that love for the world was also caused by their pride. It's amazing that there's another book in the Bible that connects these pictures of of loving the world and, and the pride of life. It's 1 John chapter 2, the passage we read earlier in the service. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the ESV translates this as a pride in possessions, but the Greek phrase literally is, would be translated the pride of life. And the word for pride that James, that, that 1 John uses, is a very exact word that James uses when he speaks about the arrogance that we often have. The arrogance of life is what this world encourages us to develop. It teaches us to believe that whatever we put our minds to, we can accomplish by our own strength, by our plans, by our strategies, by our resources. Oh, friends, do you realize that even the church can fall in the trap of this thinking? Whenever we assume that the secret for a successful church is to have a, a grand strategy of how we will accomplish our mission, we might think highly of our plans and resources. Um, I was reminded this week about the church in Sardis where Christ says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It is possible even for a church to act in its own power, in its own strength, and to give the impression to others that it is a lively church, when in reality, spiritually, it is a dead church. Or remember the church in Laodicea. Christ confronts the church with their own impressions. Christ says to her, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, 
and naked. Well, friends, whenever we make plans and do not feel our need for God, we are acting in the spirit of the arrogance of life. So far, we consider the problem. Now, let's look at the solution. What is the solution James brings to these believers? What can, what can he tell them to help them mortify this pride, this arrogance of life? What, can, what is helpful to us as we, as we examine our own hearts to tame down this arrogance? Four things that James gives as part of the solution. Four things, four subpoints to the second point of the sermon. First, remember, remember that you don't know what tomorrow brings. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. In other words, you boast about your plans. You boast about what you think you can do, not only today and tomorrow, but even in a year. But you don't know. You don't even know what tomorrow brings. It's not so much that you plan for tomorrow. It's not so much that you want things to happen tomorrow and in a year, but you forget that we are dependent creatures. What tomorrow brings may not be what we plan. And we don't know what tomorrow brings. For some, it might be the phone call from a doctor about an terminal illness. For some, it might be a, a loss of a job. For some, it might be the loss of a dear person. I remember the morning a few years ago when I was in Crystal City with a few members of our church taking some gifts uh, with the Christmas uh, Angel Tree Ministry, and uh, Sam Echevria called me that our beloved brother, Howard Kidwell, had a heart attack and passed. No one, no one made plans for that. No one had any idea that was going to happen. No indication. The people who lost their lives this past week in France or in Turkey, none of them thought that this week would be the last week of their lives. And it was not just people in, from France, French or Turks, uh, in, in that tragedy, there was even a, a father with his son here from Texas who were visiting France, and they were having vacation. None of them thought that this would be the last week of their lives. Friends, some of you are getting older. Well, all of us are getting older, but some of you are really feeling it. None of us, none of us are planning for a retirement that you won't be able to enjoy. All of us are hoping that we will have a, a time of retirement that we'll be able to enjoy. And yet illness or a chronic pain changes your plans, changes your pl traveling plans, changes the, the quality of your retirement. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Proverbs 27 one reminds us and says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. 
Friends, let this lack of knowledge about tomorrow help you tame your arrogance of life. The confidence that we know how we will spend our plans. Our planning should consider that we don't know what tomorrow brings. Friends, we grow in humility before God as we consider that we don't know what tomorrow brings. The next, the next help that James gives us, a second help that James gives us to mortify our arrogance of life is to consider what is your life. Consider what is your life. Verse 14, James asks bluntly, what is your life? A great question. What picture would you use to describe your life? How would you like to paint your life in a picture? this morning. Well, James gives us a picture. And the picture James gives us is, for you are a mist. A mist. Not even a perfume that's expensive. A mist. A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, I don't know what else can tame our arrogance of life more than being compared or more than being reminded that our lives are a mist. Friends, what is your view of life, of your life? When James uses this imagery, by using this imagery, James is calling attention to the uncertainty of life. How lasting is a mist? How certain is a mist? Oh, friends, our life is fleeting. So it's foolish to fall in the trap of the arrogance of life. Don't place your reliance upon your life. You don't place your reliance on your plans or on your planning on what you can do. Oh, friends, one of the effects of sinfulness, of our sinfulness, of our rebellion against God, is the audacity, is the, the courage or the, the, the boldness to actually put our confidence and reliance upon ourselves, upon creation, rather than upon our Creator. We turn away from trusting and relying upon our Creator, and instead we, we look to ourselves. We trust our views. We trust our abilities. We trust our plans. We trust our logic more than we depend upon the One who made us. Our sinfulness is manifested in this propensity, reliance, in inclination that we refuse to yield our plans and to consider our plans to be under the control of God. Friends, a similar use of, of the word mist, or this image of the, of the picture of a, of a mist, is used in the book of Hosea, where the prophet describes the fleeting life of idolaters, of people who put their, their, their trust, their reliance upon false gods. Hosea 13.3 says, Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, 
or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor and like smoke from a window. In other words, idolaters cannot sustain their existence for long. So why trust on yourself? Why be self-reliant? Why pretend like you don't need God? Why make plans based on your strength and not dependent upon God? Oh, friends, it is foolish to make plans apart from God. A third help that James gives us in mort- for mortifying our arrogance of life is that he teaches us that we are dependent beings. We are dependent beings. Look at verse 15. Instead, James says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. When you think about your plans, teenagers, children, as you grow and you start getting the the lure of organizing yourself, and planning for yourself, and making decisions for yourself. And that is, it's good for you to grow into becoming a responsible person. But in that, in this transition, there often come times, comes the tension between what you want to do and what your parents want you to do. And one of the signs of humility at this stage of your life even as you grow in making plans for yourself and be responsible, is still to check with your parents. It's still to check with mom and dad. Say, mom, dad, here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? Check with them. It's a sign of humility. It will help you mature better, actually. Well, friends, spiritually, when it comes to all of us, between our plans and God... It's the same way. We make plans. We want to think of and be responsible for what we do and what we should do. But we should realize that even in our sense of responsibility, we are still dependent. We're dependent upon our Creator. So in making any plan, in making every plan, we should have this sense of we are dependent beings. We are not totally autonomous. We're dependent upon our Creator. If the Lord wills, we will do such and such a thing. Here James wants us to remember that our lives are under the will of God. That His will governs even over the plans we make. Friends, even over your vacation plans. Even over your job plans. Even over the way you spend your time. In your weekend. Friend, consider the will of God. Consider that you are a dependent person. God's will in our lives is comprehensive. Now, we may not know every aspect of the will of God. As a matter of fact, one of the foolish things to do would be to try to say, I'm not going to do anything unless I have black and white clearly made or understand what the will of God is. And unless God speaks to me through some sort of voice, I'm not going to do anything. Well, friends, that's not the way God speaks his will to us and there is a revealed will of God and there is a secret will of God the revealed will of God we're supposed to know that revealed will of God is in this book 
And we're supposed to guide our lives according to this book. But there's also a secret will of God that God does not reveal to us. By that secret will, He orchestrates things over this entire universe. He orchestrates things even in our lives. We don't understand sometimes. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't know. Sometimes people say, I'm not sure if you've heard this from, from people saying, um, when things go crazy, people say, things get out of control, or things get out of hand. Oh, friends, they may get out of our control, and they, get, they may get out of our hands, but trust this, they're never out of God's control. They're never out of God's hand. We may not have access to His revealed will so that we may understand exactly what God is doing, but be sure of this, He has a secret will that He has chosen not to reveal to us. And everything happens according to that will. Everything. James here rebukes those who make plans for the future on the assumption that their lives are completely at their own disposal. Instead, James wants us to make plans. As someone said, James wants us to make plans for the future with the awareness that what actually happens is determined by God even if we don't understand that will, even if we don't have access to that will, it happens by the will of God. Proverbs 19.21 reminds us, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is a purpose of the Lord that will stand. Someone said, God has a power to veto over our plans. God has a power to veto over our plans. Now, let me clarify this. As we think about this picture of if the Lord wills, this does not mean that we need to, to tag a phrase after every sentence saying, if the Lord wills or Lord willing. That will make you pretty awkward um, if you use that phrase in every sentence. I don't think James is talking about here about the... the, the uh, encouragement to make you repeat that phrase more often as if that would be a sign of your godliness so that you can count how many days in a day you have used a phrase, Lord willing. I don't think that's what James is talking about. I think he's, what he's talking about is the attitude of the heart that truly submits all our plans to the will of the Lord. And certainly, when appropriate, you will verbalize that in words. Especially when you make plans or you make decisions. You have a decision to, pay, to have before you. You want to verbalize it and you want to express your dependence and your need for guidance to the will of the Lord. Well, friends, one of the ways we actually show this dependence to, on the Lord is not just by the phrase, if the Lord wills, it's also by how much we pray. Whether or not we pray about those matters. And that's why one of the things we're doing in the life of our church is we're considering right now this new proposal for a new constitution. We are we're making intentional effort to call our church um, to pray. We're going to have this day of prayer and fasting tomorrow uh, in which we ask you to take at least a meal or two, put them aside, uh, and, and focus time throughout the day in seeking the Lord in prayer. Do that individually wherever you're going to be tomorrow. That's why next week on Sunday afternoon we want to have a special time of, of praying for the Lord to lead us and to guide us. So far, as, as best as we understand, we've sensed the Lord leading, but we do not want to presume on that even now. We want to continue to show our dependence upon the Lord and seek His wisdom and guidance 
Now, friends, it's not just the mechanical use of the phrase, if the Lord wills, but the heart that constantly keeps this attitude of submission to the Lord's will. It is the heart and mind of those who realize that no matter what we plan, no matter what we plan, in the end, what we experience comes from the hand of God. Proverbs 16, 9, again says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. For some of you who are uh, growing older in, in, in retirement or about to retire, instead of having the, the ease of traveling, instead of having the, the pain-free life, you're experiencing pain, illness. Your plans are being changed. And it's frustrating to deal with that. It's painful to deal with that. I understand. But friends, realize that one of the things that can help us to understand and deal with that pain and frustration is if we realize that even though it's not our plan, it's against our plans, those changes of plans have been allowed by the hand of the Lord who loves us. And they come from the hand of the one who desires to sanctify us, who desires to grow us, even through suffering. And when we realize that, somehow the frustration is taken easier and better because we realize that actually nothing that comes our way, nothing that comes our way happens without the hand of God. So do we approach our plans, our life with the spirit of submission to the will of God. I love how Grudem says, to trust in the secret will of God overcomes pride and expresses humble dependence on God's sovereign control over the events of our lives. And the fourth thing that we see here in James that he gives us, he makes available for us as we seek to mortify our arrogant view of life, the fourth thing James says is making plans without reference to God is sin. Well, friends, realize that making plans without reference to God is sin. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We may wonder what this verse means to accomplish in this context. Taken by itself, if you took this verse by itself, it communicates a very important truth. That sin is not only what we do against the will of God, sin is also what we fail to do according to the will of God. This is the difference between sins of omission and sins of commission. For instance, God says, don't lie. If I lie, I cause a sin of commission. God also says, don't neglect your gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Friends, if I neglect that command, I may not think that I'm sinning because I'm not causing, I'm not doing anything against the will of God, and yet I am sinning because I'm failing to do what God commands. So someone pointed out, we have a tendency when we think of sin to think only of those things that we have done when we should have not done them. But we, when we confess our sins by name, 
We typically confess only the wrong things we have committed. But friends, how often do we confess the sins of those that we have omitted? Things that we were commanded to do and we failed to do. Even in the way we confess our sins, we rarely confess our sins of omission. But what does this passage, what does this verse mean in the context of mortifying our arrogance of life? James has been rebuking these Christians and making clear to them that the right way of living is to consider all of life, all our plans, as being under the will of God. So everything about us is ultimately dependent upon the will of God. This is the right way of approaching life. So if we live a self-reliant life, if we make plans without submitting our plans to the will of God, James is saying, it is a sin. It's not only what you commit against God, it's what you fail to live according to His ways. How does arrogance of life manifest in our lives? Oh, friends, this arrogance of life is not only for people who, who love to organize, who are compulsive planners. Although I will say, I think those who are compulsive planners um, are closer to the lure of that temptation than those who are not compulsive planners. But it is not limited only to the people who like to be organized. All of us can fall in the trap of this arrogance of life, and this arrogance of life shows itself in all kinds of ways whenever we don't consider the sovereign plan of God over our lives. Whenever we fail to remember that ultimately our plans are 100% dependent upon His will for execution. Students, as you plan your, your life, and young, uh, young believers, as you plan your life, as you develop your career, as you think about marriage, as you think about life, it's not bad to plan and plan well. But it is arrogant to plan in such a way that you don't consider the will of God and your dependency upon His will. If you don't make all your plans according to the providence, dependent upon the providence of God, you may be flirting with the sin of arrogance of life. Well, friends, for those of us who are older in age, realize that if plans don't go out the way you have expected, ask yourself, have you submitted your plans to the will of the Lord? James gave us, gave us four truths to help us mortify the arrogance of life. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Our life is but a mist. We are dependent beings. God can veto our plans. And by making our plans without reference to God, we actually sin. So friends, ask yourself, how do you make plans in life? Think about your planning habits. Do they reveal an attitude of autonomy and self-reliance? Or do they reveal an attitude of dependence upon the Lord? Oh, how sweet it is when I hear and talk to people who, yes, they make plans. They will say at some point or give it some indication, but ultimately we submit to the will of the Lord for us. There's a sweetness, there's a fragrance in that conversation. Whether you're a good planner or not, what are the ways of arrogance that you're fighting off in your life? And what are the ways in which you show dependence upon the Lord as you think about your life?
Would you pray with me? Father, as we have examined your word, we thank you that you are a God who exposes the different facets of sinfulness in our hearts. And this morning you desired to expose in us the areas of our lives in which we might show the arrogance of life, either consciously or unconsciously. Father, would you enable us to consider your sovereignty? Would you allow us, enable us to submit your will joyfully and grow in our humility before you, even as we consider the way of our life? We pray this in the name of Christ, for his honor and glory. Amen.